I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I don't know if there's a proper way to lead a revolution, but I know there's a proper way I can change people's mind by just my actions. And I think actions of love, understanding, respect, when you are on saying like, I'm better than you, there goes the first trigger. Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. I'm Trina Winter, and that is the legendary Linda Perry you just heard. I cannot <laughs> believe it. Linda Perry, singer, producer, former frontwoman of Four Non Blondes. For queer millennials like us, she wrote Get the Party Started by Pink, Beautiful by Christina Aguilera. What You're Waiting For by Gwen Stefani, and so many others. And if it was only just those three, that alone would really cement Linda as a legend. Before we get into the life and work of Linda Perry, we have to tell listeners how we even got to have a chance to have a Zoom call <laughs> with Linda Perry. So... We get an email on a Wednesday night. Um, our booker was like, could you speak to Linda Perry tomorrow? tomorrow. <laughs> like less than a full 24 hours. Luckily, we're such big Linda fans already that we knew her story and we're just so excited to talk to her. And the whole experience to me was just like it fell right into place. You know, we set up a Zoom call. So we just were each at home, I'm at home, you're at home. Linda Perry's at home in California in what I assume is a mansion. And at one point, her camera was facing the wrong way so we could see the room she was in, which was this like gigantic room with guitars <laughs> everywhere. Like just one of the biggest rooms I've ever seen. So just to bring everyone in, it's possible that you don't even know who Linda Perry is. So we're gonna give you the good stuff. I believe Linda is one of the greatest songwriters of our time. She's a charmed musical superpower. Thank you, Linda Perry, for writing an incredible, amazing song. She just has such an incredible life story, like this really volatile childhood in Springfield, Massachusetts, and then just packing up her things, going to San Francisco. Through performing in that scene, she got seen by Four Non Blondes, had a massive hit with What's Up, also kind of known as What's Going On, although the song's actually called What's Up, even though they do not say what's up in the song. But then, you know, she experiences this massive level of fame and success, and it's not what she thought it would be, and it's overwhelming for her to deal with and she sort of spirals into this very dark period and then she re-emerges in the early 2000s <laughs> at, with get the party started <laughs> i mean that's such a journey that's a wild ride it's a wild ride 
we know her, the arc, you know, we know Four Non Blondes and then the sort of songs from the early 2000s. But I was like, why is she doing press now? But turns out she has a new song, The Letter. It's her first solo song in 15 years. It sounds amazing. So where are you now? Where were you then? Do you belong? Have you found a true friend? And who you making love with along the way? She's a character who was there in the 90s. You know, it was the Lilith Fair era. It was all these very influential women who had such a strong impact on us like queer millennials because we grew up watching these Gen X women kind of fight for their place in the business, in the culture, really. And on top of that, she is one of the rare people who has always been out. Like from the first moment she stepped onto the the, the stage, she was out, she was proud. It's easy to forget that in the 90s, being an entertainer and being gay was such a risky thing. Like coming out really meant that you were taking a risk. It really meant that you were putting your career on the line because very often it would not be well received and your career would be dead in the water. There is one coming out in the 90s that was very pivotal to me. Um, it's the George Michael coming out. He came out uh, during a CNN interview in 98 after getting arrested in a Beverly Hills restroom. Um, for, for public sex. <laughs> and I, get, I guess at the time as a preteen, I was mortified, but also very aroused by this story. <laughs> um, but I remember there were also helicopter shots of the park. Actually, like these images stuck to my mind because... They looked so similar to the OJ chase down the highway a few years prior. But I just remember the process of, of, of George Michael coming out being this like very uh, intrusive act from the media who wanted to have the truth. And then people were challenging the songs that he wrote in the 80s. And so it, and they wanted to vilify him. It really felt like they wanted to paint him out to be this like sex demon. <laughs> and through all of this, Linda's been out. And whenever asked about being queer, being, just being like, yeah, I love women. Next question, <laughs> like, get off. And so to see Linda just from the get-go, just be so unapologetically herself and feel that there wasn't really any other way to be is really interesting to me. And we got to talk to her about that, which was amazing. And just a heads up, listeners, we really did speak to Linda on Zoom. The conversation is very raw, so you'll hear some scratchy sounds and, yes, some swearing. At that time, people weren't coming out. They were kind of hidden. I found it very interesting because... I mean, I knew I was queer when I was born. Like, it, it was obvious. I was having full-on attractions at five, six years old, I remember, you know. And I just knew that I was walking a different beat. I never knew any other way. Like, I was just, you know, this is who I am. I mean, I was a total punk rocker, too. Like, I was living at 14, 15. I was living out in the streets. I would come back home. I'd go be punk rock for, like, a month, come back home. And one day, my mom, you know, she she asked me. She took me to this church. My mom's Brazilian with this heavy-duty accent. And, and you know, Brazilian. And 
So I, I come over and she's like, oh, Linda, just come with me. And I'm like, you know, I already know there's something funny going on, but it's exciting too, because I'm like, what other crazy fucking thing is going to come out of this woman, you know? <laughs> um, and so it, I was like, you know, kind of just, you know, okay, I'm going to go along for the, the ride on this one. And um, we go to this church, you know, where we've never, ever gone to church, right? And then she's, you know, get comfortable. You know, Linda, you can tell me anything, but are you homosexual? And I'm like, what? <laughs> She's like, are you homosexual? I'm like, what are you saying, lady? You know, like, what? And I go, oh, do you think I like women? Am I gay? And she's like, yes. I'm like, yes, I, lo- I like chicks, you know? And she was, this is my mom, no kidding. And she told me that you could use women just like you could use men. And then that was... <laughs> That was it. That's as far as I went with that and like no problem. And um, everything was very accepting. And so I felt very lucky. My mom's biggest fear was that I would just not have a man to take care of me. And how am I going to survive? You know, because she's old school and that's where she comes from. So then when Four Non Blondes showed up and I moved to San Francisco and we got signed, this is where the interesting turn happened. So my bass player, full on dyke, drummer, lesbian, and our guitar player, lesbian. And, um, and then they were having issues about me being fully out, you know? And I would be like, Krista, the bass player, like, you got a fucking mustache, dude. You don't think people don't think you're a raving dyke? What are you talking about? You're wearing a, you're wearing flannel. You look like a guy and you have a mustache. Who are you fucking kidding, man? You know? And then when, um, this is a long story, but I'm going to give it all to you because it's very fascinating. Uh, we go to play David Letterman and on my guitar, it says Dyke and Choice. And so they came to us during sound check, and the producer came to me and said, um, we're having a problem with uh, maybe your guitar. Like we're thinking that it might be a little bit of too big of a statement. And I'm like, well, which one, Dyke or Choice? And um, they said, well, the, 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 the first one, you know, she's like, there's this really great vintage store down the street and we would gladly buy you another guitar if you wanted to, you know, um, a lot of people go there. And I'm like, listen, you guys asked us to come on the show and I so want to be here and I'm so grateful but this is my guitar. This is not me making a statement. This is just who I am. And if that's going to be a problem for you guys, then maybe if my guitar can't play, I can't play. And that was my answer. And then she was like, okay, I'll be right back. And then she disappeared, came back about 15 minutes later and said, okay, everything's great. So then I'm thinking what's going to happen is they're just going to show my face and stay off my guitar. They were on my, they started, I believe on my guitar. You know, and then that's when I realized people are just going to push because they are uncomfortable. They're just going to try to push the discomfort away. But if you don't blink an eye and you stand there and fight it, chances are they're just going to go, okay, and just be accepting in some form. And that's how my whole career has been, you know, still today. I just do what I do. I show who I am. And then people just embrace it. And they might show discomfort with my honesty. They might show discomfort with, you know, me expressing, you know, my love interests. But 
they always end up embracing it. I have to admit, when we found out that we were going to get to interview Linda, my mind went straight away to Christina Aguilera's Beautiful. That is one of the most defining songs of my life. Even though I'm not necessarily a diehard Christina fan, that song has really stayed with me from the moment I first heard it till now. I am beautiful, no matter what they say. As hard as it was for people to come out in the music industry, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, again, despite the challenges, still had queer icons. You know, we had David Bowie and Freddie Mercury and Elton John. But for me, being a kid, young teen in the early 2000s, it felt like an extremely heteronormative time. I find everyone at that time was really performing these very hyper depictions of masculinity and femininity. So I think of J-Lo and Britney and even Christina to some extent, where it's just this hyper femininity and then you and, had the guys Eminem and, and Chad Kroger <laughs> yeah exactly and even Fred Durst you Ew. know <laughs> like it was such a gross time yeah. but finally there was this moment that emerged and it was actually Christina Aguilera's beautiful music video which actually showed queer people in this really vulnerable but beautiful way um, and I remember at that time seeing that video and hearing that song, especially, I think a lot of queer kids at that time did not feel beautiful, did not feel accepted, did not feel worthy of all that much. So that for me, and I know for so many people at that time really became this anthem. I remember being in the car, hearing it on the radio, and trying not to cry so that my mom wouldn't be like, what's what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to ask Linda if that was the intention with Beautiful. Was it made to be this moment of queer empowerment during a very heteronormative time? You know, when I write songs, I don't really ever think about the song prior to the song. It, it just kind of shows up. And with Beautiful, that was more like, like I never thought I was a cute person. Never thought I was of interest in that way. Um, I am the first to count myself out. Like no one needs to tell me when I'm doing something wrong. I'm the first one that's already pointing it out. So that song was coming from a place of, you know, me trying to tell myself, you're okay. You're okay, kid, you know? And there's others that are feeling like you that are okay. So in a weird way, the song had nothing to do with being gay, but it has everything to do with being gay. It has everything to be with doing, being different. You know, the way people's brains work, um, you know, people just feeling out of place because they simply feel like an alien. Um, you know, that's where that song came from. And it took me a second to be able to finish the song because when I first said, I am beautiful, I was like, 
no, I'm not. No, I'm not. What, what the fuck are you saying, Lynn? You can't sing a song like that. So then when Christina showed up, then the story took a different turn. Then she came in very, you know, you think from the outside, here's this very confident, hot chick, you know, it's got the world wrapped around her fingers. She's got genie in a bottle. She's got lightning. She's got everything, right? And then I'm thinking, and then she heard the song because she asked me to break the ice. So I play her the song because it's, I just wrote it. And I'm like, all right, I'll just play you this song. And then she was like, I want that song. Can you demo it for me and give me the lyrics? And I'm thinking right away, like, no, you're a hot chick. You can't fucking have this song, you know? And then I was like, okay, well, I'll let her sing it and see what happens. And when she sang it and I heard the vulnerability in her voice, I was like, oh, oh, beautiful people think they're ugly too, you know? Okay. And it's like, it all hit me. Like, I get what the song is about now. Then it all came clear hearing it from this girl that you wouldn't think would be insecure, but here she is. The very first words that come out of her mouth are to her best friend sitting there going, don't look at me. You know, and I kept that knowing that that was I was going to open the whole song with that because that was the most vulnerable thing she could have said. And the tone, like the way she said, like, Don't look at me. like she didn't want anybody to hear her vulnerability, but it was fucking loud and clear. And I kept it and I played it to the world, you know. When Linda was telling the story of being there in that dark studio with Christina, I was genuinely surprised to hear Linda describe Christina's vulnerability and how Christina didn't feel beautiful. That's kind of shocking to me. People also need to remember that most of the songs performed by Christina and Brittany at the time were written by men, produced by men. So that is also one thing that is so radical about Beautiful is that the song is performed, written and produced by women. Another example of one of these songs that Linda worked on is the lead single from Gwen Stefani's first solo record, What You Waiting For. I mean, the energy from this pop song. It I, still <laughs> holds up to this day. And what is so cool is just to imagine Gwen Stefani's energy. Because, of course, we're also we're old enough to remember the 90s version of Gwen, you know, with No Doubt and I'm Just a Girl and, and Don't Speak. So to just imagine the energy of her as an artist and performer with Linda's energy as a songwriter and producer colliding in the studio. I had to ask Linda about that. Well, Gwen was fun because she was like literally like she you had to drag her into the studio with me like she did not want to break from no doubt you know Jimmy Iving you know convinced her that she needed to do a solo album and it would change everything and she was very reluctant Jimmy Iving loved me and thought I was like the golden child and said you know go work with Linda Perry when she was at the studio you know, you could tell she didn't want to be there and dragging her feet, didn't want to do anything and was just like talking about how 
this that feels uncomfortable for her not to be with me, but to start, you know, this journey on making a solo album. Like she's had the guys always like she, she went on about her brother. Like she actually, her brother was in the band and brought her into the band and she wasn't even supposed to be in no doubt and blah, 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 blah. You know, Gwen is the nicest person and the most humble and so funny and dorky at the same time. And, but she was just like, you know, really like she just shows her emotion. And I said, well, why don't you go and come back tomorrow? And she's like, okay, you know, blah, 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 you know, like literally hum drum and buzzkill, you know? And so she leaves and I'm now convinced I have to do something that's going to wake her up. So I worked overnight. I did the whole production. The song just showed up. And then all I did is put the chorus in there, the what you waiting for, what you waiting for. So everything. And so when she showed up the next day, I, I mean, I was there all night long. She showed up and she's like, hey, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, and I didn't say anything. I just pushed play. And then she was like, holy fuck. Where the fuck did that come from? I go, it came from you. You know, it came from your reluctance, you sitting here, you know, it's like, what are you fucking waiting for, Gwen? Take it, own it, go for it. And then we just sat there and figured out the melody for the verses. And she wrote lyrics. I wrote lyrics. We went back and forth. And then I think Jimmy Iovine showed up late that day and to hear what we were doing. And I played him that song and he's like, well, there's your first hit. And it was very similar to, you know, Pink and, and Christina's. Like, there's the first single. And um, that song is so great because, I mean, that was a groundbreaking song to come out with. Like, it was cool. It was, there was nothing like that out there, you know, but that's what I tend to do. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I really wanted to ask Linda about the Four Non Blonde song, What's Up? That's their biggest hit. That's the song that Linda's probably the most known for, but also I'm assuming the song that she is fed up of and tired of talking about. But especially in this last year after everything we've gone through, I can't even tell you the number of times I have been at home with my headphones on blasting What's Up. Really? Because Linda's vocals on that yeah. song are so transcendent. And for me, singing along to that song is an emotional release. Like when I feel like all my emotions are all bottled up, I just sing along to that song and I feel just a kind of momentary release. Well, that's probably why it's one of the biggest songs ever to sing at, the, at a karaoke. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And 
the sentiment that really speaks to me about that song, and I think that really speaks to this moment, is the part in the song where Linda talks about praying for revolution. And in so many ways, it does feel like we are on the brink of a much needed revolution on every level. And I don't know, I just had this mental image of Linda leading us <laughs> through the revolution. So I had to ask Linda, what would the revolution look like if she were leading it? Don't put me on the spot here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know how to answer that, but I'll just say what comes to mind. I try to lead with, as cheesy as this sounds, with love and respect. I believe everything can be talked out if you choose to want to see uh, a solution. If we want change, it's like we can change things with a tone. People want to be heard. People want to be heard. And I think a lot of times, like with this whole Trump thing, you know, his fans and or, you know, followers, whatever you want to call them, those people just felt like Trump was hearing them, right? That's exactly what it was. That's why he got all those people, because they felt there's this person that can hear what's going on in their mind. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It just means that it just shows us that if we can just try to hear people, you know, when people like fight about religion, I never get that because it's like, aren't we all just believing in something? Whether it's Buddhism, Catholic, Christian, whatever you want to call it, Kabbalah, isn't the point that we all believe in something. I don't know if there's a proper way to lead a revolution. But I know there's a proper way I can change people's mind by just my actions. And I think actions of love, understanding, respect, and making sure you don't make yourself seem better than somebody, because that is the worst. When you are on, on trying to saying like, I'm better than you, there goes the first trigger. That's the first bullet that gets shot in the air. So you imagine Linda leading the revolution, but when she was answering that question, I was picturing Dolly, because she's <laughs> worked with Dolly. I mean, it's not every day or even every year that we get to speak to someone who was in the same room as Dolly Parton. So I was like, this is it. If I want to get my fix of Dolly Parton juju wisdom, this is it. I got to ask Linda about it. I want to be I mean, she is not of this planet. She is not of this world, this woman. I mean, and I say that with all seriousness. Like, I've never met anybody with a frequency like hers. She's just always riding on the high, you know? And whether you are brought her coffee or handed her a million dollars, she treats you exactly the same with respect, kindness, and love. And I asked her one time, I said, Dolly, you know, you produce all your tracks. Like, 
I'm watching you in the studio. You've been telling me what to do and you never take those credits. And she's like, Linda, I don't need that. She's like, I have all of this. I got to let some other people shine, you know? I like, And then that's what she does. She says she likes to let other people shine. And that right there is a leader because a great leader will not try to take will not try to to win the war themselves. A great leader will not try to cook, you know, for the whole village. You know, a great leader is not going to try to teach when they don't have the understanding themselves. A great leader puts the best in those positions, gets the best warrior, the best chef, the best teacher, and puts them in position. And that's what Dolly does. She leads by lifting people's spirits up and giving and believing in them. And that's why she's an icon. That's why Dolly Parton is one of the most popular people because she is just kind. And you you can't take that away from her. There's no turning a kind gesture from Dolly Parton into something mean and malicious. It's just, there's it's impossible, you know? Her intentions and integrity are so honest and pure and innocent and beautiful. Yeah, totally. Well, thank, thank you, so, you much for this. so much. It's been such an honor and a joy. All right, thank you guys. Have a wonderful weekend. Have a you wonderful too. Day. Take, Take care. Linda Perry. The letter, her first new solo song in 15 years, is now streaming everywhere, and you need to listen to it. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? Today is a very special Obsessions. So after our conversation with Linda, we felt really nostalgic for the early 2000s. And who better to look back on that time with than the guys from Miss Thing, which is one of my favorite, favorite podcasts. It's hosted by Sean Ross and Derek Obishan, and it's a podcast about the female singer-songwriters of the 90s, Sarah McLaughlin, Alanis, and they frame their episodes around these compilation albums called Women in Songs that were released in Canada. They do these brilliant deep dives going into all the songs on those compilation albums. And then they do these special episodes where they focus on the entire discography of a specific artist. Like their Fiona Apple deep dive is delicious. I highly recommend it. We are the types of queers who are clearly obsessed with music and culture. So to, to be in conversation with other queers like us who are about the same age, who grew, grew up in the same era, and to talk about these very, very specific cultural milestones was a real delight. Here's our conversation. Welcome to Chosen Family. Thanks for having us. It's a real pleasure. I feel like I already know both of you. Um, even though your podcast isn't necessarily you sharing personal stories, I feel like so much of who you are and your personality really comes through in your opinions on the music that you talk about in the show. So in the end, it kind of does feel personal. I think it's 
inherently gay to become obsessed with especially female artists like it's so intrinsic to your personality or it's easy to base your personality around the things that you become obsessed with and so easy to idolize a female singer songwriter uh that i feel like that does become your personality but then there's also this queer connection between um, the flop eras. Like, I feel like queer audiences love the flops way more than the hits. Absolutely. Like, for me, it's all about picking your thing that you fell in love with at its height and then sticking with it to the bitter end. (laughs) So let's dive in to the early 2000s. And Sean, I'll start with you. What song are you obsessed with from that period of time? And what does it represent to you? Well, when I think about the early 2000s, I think of the second generation of women in songs for me is typified by Avril Lavigne. (laughs) (laughs) And so the song that I am obsessed with is I'm With You. Avril's uh, third single from her debut album. And I think her first sort of singer-songwriter single. It was a little bit uh, more pared back, a little bit more slowed down, and a little more introspective. And I was the perfect age when this came out to be the target audience of this song. Like, I was 16. It was... Very much me discovering the music and also understanding it, not just being interested in it, but understanding it. Wow, that's a brave choice. Um, (laughs) And do you have a particular like memory associated to either that song or Avril at that time in your life? Yeah, well, like with everything that I get interested in, I become obsessed with it. And so I had to go see Avril and she came to Ottawa on her Try to Shut Me Up tour in 2003. (laughs) They they tried. (laughs) And uh, they were unsuccessful. And so I went and because I was also very heavily into like the online community at the time, which was new for me and being like a gay kid from a small town, I thought that that was a really good way to connect with other people who were interested in the same things as me. So all of that to say, I was reading about what was going on at these tours and like how to get the best spot and all of these things. And so I knew that in Avril's show, when she would reach Complicated, she would bring two people from the audience on stage. And so I thought, this has to be me. This is my (laughs) destiny. And so I go and I make sure that I'm in the front row and I'm looking around at this concert and I'm the only guy, one of the only guys in the pit, let alone in the front row. And so the concert's going on and I can tell she's like, she's spotted me, you know, like I'm, I'm the little boy in the front row. And so it comes time to perform complicated and she comes right up to me and is like, you, do you want to come on stage? (laughs) (laughs) so I'm like yeah that's why I'm here that's why I came here 
And so I clamber up on stage. And so she sings Complicated to me. I sing a line of it as well. Uh, so technically, I duetted with Avril Lavigne. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you remember, like, was she, like, sweating? Like, did you look oh. into her eyes? Oh, yeah, I did look into her eyes. And, uh, she... and saw nothing. <laughs> 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 just, just, just a blank void. <laughs> the thing that I remember very clearly was that she had a zit on her cheek. <laughs> And I found that uh, very humanizing because I was too was covered in zits. That was something that I remember that I was like, okay, this is a real person. You know, it was that zit. (laughs) So, Derek, let's move on to your choice. What song from the early 2000s holds a special place in your heart? Um, Well, a current obsession. I knew you were speaking to Linda Perry. And I really got to thinking about the album that Linda Perry worked on with Courtney Love. Um, Courtney Love's solo debut after the disbanding of Hole. Basically, both of them describe it as an unmitigated disaster. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was thinking about the single called Mono. Um, <laughs> Courtney has lost her voice, <laughs> can barely <laughs> string together two notes. Um, but just through sort of sheer force of will as a performer and believer in her in her manifest destiny of becoming a rock star, somehow shoehorns this mess into this like really kind of glossy radio rock package. And do you have any, do you remember when it first came out and like what your reaction to it was at the time versus your feelings about it now? Um, I think my biggest memory around it is um, I had started hanging out with a friend of mine and um, with the intention of forming a band. We were both very excited about the new Courtney Love record. It was something that we had really bonded over. And it came out and we were both just like we we couldn't talk about it. <laughs> we were both so heartbroken. <laughs> it's tragic. Um. So, uh, Thomas, what what song have you selected? Oh my god. Um. So it was a journey. Uh, picking a song that I was obsessed with. I'm I'm landing on kids. So the duet, the Kylie Minogue, Robbie Williams duet, um, because I do believe that Robbie Williams is a diva. Robbie Williams um, was like so hot at that time. <laughs> like, I think for me at that time, like that was my biggest celebrity crush. And and I am a diehard Kylie Minogue fan, of course. But at that time, I didn't really know Kylie. You know, I just knew her as like the girl in Robbie's video. And I remember yeah. like being so mad 
mad at her because I felt like she was like stealing my man away from me. I'm like, get away, Kylie. <laughs> and do you have like a particular memory of like Robbie's music in your life at that time? So um, my taste of showbiz, like all of us, kind of came at the time. And I directed a show right after high school. We have this sort of like these two years in Quebec called CJEP. It's these like like pre-college years. And I directed a show. And the opening number of the show was the song Let Me Entertain You. Um, <laughs> it's technically not 2000s. It's 97. But it's just like Robbie doing his best like Kiss slash Freddie Mercury glam rock. He's a clown. He's hot. And we use the song as this like opening number. And I remember like commissioning a full choreo. Like I had a choreographer <laughs> and all the cast of that show. Um and it's so weird because I was I wasn't into like musical theater, but I love these songs and I wanted to like attached attach like meaning to these songs. And I think Let Me Entertain You was that like my, really about my desire of Robbie for Robbie to be gay or be queer. And it really he wasn't. Um, but I still think fondly of that time. <laughs> Trina, what is your obsession? So I've selected um, Kelly Clarkson's A Moment Like This. <laughs> course because to me it really represents that 2003 moment in time where you know it was the first season of American Idol which was like this whole new experience that like had everyone my age like riveted and I have this really distinct memory of a moment like this playing at one of our high school dances and I remember, even though the song is so horrible, and this is so embarrassing to admit, but that night, the song made me so emotional because I was like, <laughs> because I was at this dance, you know, at this weird moment in time where I was trying to figure out like my gender identity, my sexual identity. And I was just trying to kind of fit in, but not really. And just being at this dance and hearing the lyrics <laughs> to that song and just wishing that I had a boyfriend so badly that I'm just like here, like in this like suburban cafeteria where we're having a dance. <laughs> and I'm like, I just want a boyfriend. And that song, like just like, that was the moment that I was waiting for. Like I kept waiting for a moment where someone else who was queer would enter my life because I needed that so desperately at that moment. Honestly, that song haunts me um, to this day. <laughs> I mean, it haunts a lot of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you both so, so much. It was such a joy to talk to both of you and I'm forever your number one fan. Thank you. Well, thank pleasure. you so much. Wow, I'm early 2000s out. <laughs> We've overdosed on the nostalgia. <laughs> it felt good, though. It did. We have to end with this. Um, so we spoke about Linda Perry and her working with all these musicians and our obsessions from the early 2000s. And you just released to the streaming platforms your first record. I know. Your own compositions, a few cover. 
Um, so tell the listeners a bit more about Safe From Your Affection. Yes, yeah, so that's the album. And it really feels like a miracle to be a singer, to have an album, to now have my own little contribution out in the world feels really, really good. We even have a clip of the song. Which song did you choose? So this song is called, Did You Want This? Sounds amazing. <laughs> Time for credits. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Catherine Stockhausen is our bookings producer. Mantali Ndongo is our contributing producer. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Tsigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. We are recording this season at Tome Park Studio. Also, of course, get on it. Follow us on Instagram. What you waiting for? <laughs> at Chosen Family Show. And read our column with Extra Magazine. That's the way it is. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it, and we'll have a catchphrase soon. We're gonna we're gonna start a catchphrase. Stay tuned. Bye. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.